Can you hear me? Bulldogs won, 34-31. Woo! Now, let's hunker down and talk about the kingdom. Turn to Luke chapter 9, please. Luke chapter 9, please. I know in a, in a room this big, uh, we, have, we have people that are um, cat people. And we have people that are dog people. Okay? Now, I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard the difference between the two, but I'm going to tell you anyway. If you, um, if you love a dog and you take care of it, feed the dog and care for the dog, the dog um, will look and say, wow, he loves me, he takes care of me, he's kind to me. He must be my master. But if you love a cat, and you take care of a cat, and you do good things for a cat, the cat will look at you and he will think, hmm, he loves me. He's done really good things for me. He cares for me. I must be his master. Now, now, the reason I say that is because there is a real sense in which uh, the dog and the cat in that illustration represent the two kingdoms. You know, one, one kingdom where, you know, we see our master as Jesus, and the other where we see that we're the master. Okay, and um, that's a, it's a clear delineation between the two that we've been talking about this morning. And what I want to do today is um, I want to talk about um, that in terms of your relationships, and particularly in terms of the relationship that the disciples had with Jesus, and a particular interaction that he had with them in Luke chapter nine. Um, and we're going to look particularly at the idea of greatness, okay? Um, what it looks like in these two kingdoms, because um, greatness in our king, in, in our kingdom is based on uh, comparison. Said again, greatness in our little kingdoms are based on comparison. Uh, greatness in God's kingdom is based on Jesus. And I hope we could spell that out a little bit for you, because uh, greatness in our kingdom can come pretty cheap, pretty easy. Uh, but it never pays off in the end. But greatness in God's kingdom um, is often odd and difficult, um, but it's well worth dying for. So my hope tonight is that we can look a little bit at this idea of greatness, think about our relationships with one another, um, examine ourselves a little bit, and, and hopefully continue to think about how to move from one kingdom to the other. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, you're very good to us to, to give us a night like this uh, where we can be together. And you are very merciful to us to continue to help us see the kingdom. We thank you that um, it is good news that the kingdom has come and that Jesus is our king. And we pray tonight that you would help us to continue to see that and want that in our lives. And um, Father, I particularly pray that you would help us to begin to see uh, how being in your kingdom begins to change everything, particularly how we look at each other and ourselves in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, because he is the king. All right, Luke chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 46 through 50. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. It begins this way, it says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, them being the disciples. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put it by his side, and he said to them, 
Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Um, I don't know how many of you have read the C.S. Lewis books called The Chronicles of Narnia, or you've seen the movies, The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it's a very interesting story. Um, and part of the story is that um, these four children sort of enter into this land called Narnia that's very different from the world they live in. Talking animals and the like. And, um, what's really different, though, is as they enter into the land, they begin to find out that they have been, the four of them have sort of been long-time prophesied kings and queens or stewards of the kingdom placed by this lion named Aslan, who is sort of the god figure in the story. And um, as they arrive, they begin to see sort of glimpses of Narnia's greatness, and they slowly begin uh, to believe that um, they really might be these people that they think they are. Um, they really start thinking, you know, wow, could it be that we really are kings and queens in this land that's so different, so strange to us? Um, and in the beginning, they really struggle with the idea of whether or not Narnia is real. They, you know, they laugh at their sister when she goes in and gets back out, and they find uh, that she says these things about this new land. Um, but over time, they begin their minds begin to be changed about this about this thing. and they really start believing in the greatness that Aslan has for them in this land. Now, I think something's very rings very true. Uh, in the Narnia story, also in our lives, when we think about the kingdom. Because if you're part of God's kingdom, and it's coming to bear in this world, there's a real sense in which he has greatness for you in your life. Um, that he is making you great. And I'm going to explain what that means tonight, because it's probably not what you think. Um, and it comes at a great price. But nevertheless, um, I hope that you'll begin to have a similar hope in your heart as you think about these things like this. Is this really true that there's this other world, this other kingdom? And I'm supposed to be a part of that? And is it true that God has really good things planned for me and he's going to really change things and fix things and make them good again? Is it really true that, um, that one day I'm not going to be angry anymore? And that one day I'm not going to lust anymore? One day I'm not going to be sad anymore? Is it really true? I, and I hope that as you begin to listen to what the disciples say and how Jesus pushes back on them and talks about the kingdom, you'll begin to see that and want that in your life and begin to trust in the fact that Jesus is there. So let's look at this passage together. Um, and I want to look at really two lessons that we learned from the passage today about greatness in particular. Um, and the first, um, as we begin to look at it, um, is that Jesus... Um, talks to them and, and finds out that they've been having this discussion about his grace. You have the, the 12 of them, they're talking, they're trying to, uh, they're arguing about who the greatest of them are. And uh, of course, this makes us ask the question, like, these guys are sort of the, the foundation of the church. Why are they doing this? Aren't they good Christian people? You know, why are they arguing about who's great? Um, and, um, and there's several reasons that that could be. It, it, perhaps it was because um, right before this passage, Jesus took three of them up on a mountain. And, uh, and, and showed his glory to them. And they came back down and certainly talked to the other disciples about what had happened to them. 
And uh, they're probably thinking, well, we're not as good as those guys, or those guys are better than us. You know, the common feeling we have in religion, that, you know, people are better because, you know, they, they look like they're closer to Jesus, or they're better because they're morally better than us. So they're maybe arguing about greatness because of that. Um, it might be because Jesus says right before this passage, um, he, he actually comes to the disciples and he says, guys, you need to get ready because I'm going to die. Okay? I'm going to, I'm, my, my face is headed toward Jerusalem. And, um, and everything's about to change because I'm going to, to die. And so, you know, they might be thinking, well, you know, if, if that's true, if he's going to die, then what's going to happen to the kingdom once he leaves? Will there be sort of a reshuffling of who's in charge and where will we be? You know, where, where will we fall in the pecking order of the kingdom? And so they might be arguing about something like that. Um, it, it might be that they see the kingdom in a, in a very poor sense, like it's an earthly kingdom, like the Romans or the or um, the, the Hebrew kings and so on and so forth, they think, well, this is going to be a political kingdom and maybe we need to figure out where we're going to be in terms of that. We, we don't really know why they were arguing. We just know that they were certainly arguing about which of them was going to be the most important, which of them was going to be the greatest. And, um, and this leads sort of the first thing I want you to see, and that's this, okay, is that in our little kingdoms, the kingdom over here where we're in the center, comparison with one another is cherished. It's extremely important to you. Now, you may not realize that, but it is. Comparing yourself to other people is extremely important to you. And for a lot of reasons. One reason is comparison is important to you because it's how you evaluate the little kingdom that you're in. Okay? When you're in this kingdom, you know, look at how the disciples did it. You know, how did they determine who was the greatest? How do we do that? Um, you know, who has the most authority? Who was treated best by Jesus? Um, who was the most valuable to the cause? Uh, who was best favored by Jesus? Uh, who has, who's the best relational? Um, who's the most successful? Who's the most entitled? Who has the most gifts? Who has the, you know, who has the best mojo? You know, who's, who's the best for this stuff? We, we think in terms of these categories. Um, and there's a real sense in which all of you, this is what we do. Think about it. We walk into a room, and when we walk into the room, we immediately start comparing ourselves. And we do it in all sorts of ways, sort of insidious ways. First of all, it's the way we look. You know, we think, am I better looking than them? You know, where, you know, you walk into the room and you think, there are people that are better looking than me, and there are people that are not as good looking as me. I fall in there somewhere. Yeah. And we walk into the room and we think, there are people that are athletic in here, and some of them are more athletic than me, and some of them are not. And we're, we're evaluating our kingdom and how great it is based on other people and what they're doing and what they're doing. Um, and, we, and we do this in lots of areas on who's the prettiest, who's the smartest, Who's funniest, who's the most gifted, who's the most social, who's the most athletic. All those ways we, we compare ourselves to each other. Um, and so we evaluate where we fall sort of in the pecking order, okay, in this room. And then what you do is that you use comparison to sort of see what you need to advance your kingdom at that point. Not only evaluating, but advancing it. Um, see, we need comparison to sort of figure out how great we are. So that then we can kind of decide how to deal with people who are better than us. You know, someone may be better than you, and so what, the way you deal with it is maybe you just don't talk to them anymore. You exclude them from your group because that doesn't allow you to advance your own team. Or maybe uh, someone is better at you or better looking than you or more athletic than you or something like that, and, and, and the way you deal with it is that you begin to belittle them in front of people. And you treat them like they're inferiors to you because they're not like you, you know. And we do this all the time in our lives. It's really insidious that we use, compare, we cherish it in our kingdoms because it helps us to evaluate who's better. You know, on the, um, you know, y'all ever played the, the, the game, um, 
what is it called, with the little ladder, the ladder ball, where you put the tennis balls on it, you know, you're trying to find out, you're always trying to be better than somebody, you know, that's kind of the way we evaluate other people. We're always trying to be one step better. You know, that's, we want our kingdoms to advance in that particular way. Um, and, and so what it does is it, uh, it, it ruins our relationships. Just ruins it. Because we begin to look at people and say, okay, what am I going to do to advance my kingdom? How am I going to manipulate these people to get what I want? How am I going to, you know, if, if these people are opposed to me getting what I want, then how am I going to deal with them? You know, am I gonna, if you're a blockade, am I going to have conflict with this person? Or pick a fight with them? You know, what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with that? Or, or, you know, how can I how can I use what I have in my kingdom and my resources in my kingdom to get them to do what I want them to do? That's how we, that's how we do this. In comparison... It's the way that we, that we kind of evaluate and work through these things in our kingdom. Um, now, Jesus' response to this is very interesting. Uh, the disciples are kind of fighting, and Jesus walks up to them, and he takes a kid, a little bitty child. Uh, the other gospels say that the child was, was a small child, that he could sit in Jesus' lap, or he could hold it. And he brings the child over, and he, uh, and he says this to them. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who's great. Um, now, I want to say, like, sometimes we read that and we think, Jesus uses this kid to tell the disciples, you know, they need to have more of a childlike faith. And, you know, they need to be more committed, you know, as a, you know, like a child is committed to their parents, or they, you know, they serve their king in that way. And that, that may have some truth, but that's not what Jesus says. Okay? Jesus doesn't talk about um, this little child as someone... Um, he doesn't tell the disciples they need to be like little children. He tells them that they need to receive little children. Okay, That's what he says. He says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And, um, and so what he's trying to get across is that if you really understand the gospel, then you're going to receive people that you think are more lowly than you. You're going to see them differently because you see that you're inferior to Jesus and he has received you and given you mercy. And so that's how he begins to deal with this. Um, there was once a there's once a little boy, and every day when he walked to school, he walked by a pet store, and um, he walked by this pet store one time, and uh, he saw these puppies playing, and he really wanted one. And so after school, he goes home and he tells his parents that he wants one of the puppies. His parents are a little reluctant at first, but then they say, "Well, you know, this is what we'll do. If you save up your allowance and you do some chores around the house, once you have enough money, we'll let you buy one of these puppies." And so the little boy's all excited, and he does the work that he needs to do. And uh, finally, he makes enough money to get one of the puppies, and he goes to school, and he comes back, and as he's walking, he walks to the pet store at the end of the day, he puts the money on the counter, and he says, pet store owner, I'm here for one of those puppies. He says, well, they're in a box right over there. Just go over there and pick one out that you want. So the little boy walks over, and he looks down into the box, and there are about seven or eight little puppies running around and jumping and playing and having fun in the box. And over in the corner, there's one particular puppy that doesn't run and jump and play like the other. He's kind of sitting in the box. The little boy looks for a minute, and then uh, finally he reaches down and he picks up that puppy in the corner. And he takes it over to the pet store owner, and he says, this is the one I want. And the pet store owner said, you don't want that puppy, son. He's crippled. He's not going to ever run and jump and play like the other puppies do. You don't want that. And the little boy looked at the pet store owner for a moment, and then he reached down and he pulled up his pants leg and revealed a brace on his leg. And he said, I'm a cripple too. And I'm going to take this one. You see, when we see ourselves as inferiors, when we see our own mess, 
when we see our own brokenness, we begin to change in the way we deal with other people. Um, and Jesus sort of obliterates this idea of comparison. Um, in a real sense, he redeems it. Um, we realize that um, comparison in our little kingdoms are cherished, but comparison in his kingdom is condemned. There is no, there is no comparison in his kingdom. Um, think about this for a second. Um, he redeems our need to compare. Um, we realize as, as people in his kingdom that our greatness is not found in comparing ourselves to other people, but our greatness is found by being connected up to the king himself. That's where true greatness is found as we're connected to him. And so that begins to change the way we think about comparison in the world. Um, we also see that a world without comparison, get this, is a better world. world. A world without comparison is a better world. Think about it. What would a world without comparison look like? Um, what would it look like? It, it, would, it would be a place where you would sort of be set free from all of your insecurities because you wouldn't have to feel inferior about your little kingdom all the time. It would be a place where you could lead or be in charge without pride and without feeling like you have to run over people or get your agendas done um, because you would not feel superior in a kingdom like that because your greatness is connected to the one who is superior to the king. I was talking to a good friend of mine um, about a month ago and I asked him this question. I said, what do you think it would be like to live in a, in a place where there was no comparison to other people. And he said this, I thought this was a great thing. He said, uh, I think it means that I could do it. That I wouldn't have to mask up. That I wouldn't have to have pretense in my life. That I, that I could be myself and not have to worry about it and be safe. I mean, you know, you heard Elliot say this at the beginning. Are you up to the place where we want it to be safe? For people to come in? And that can't be if there's constant comparison with people. It can't be. And the king says there is no comparison. This is a kingdom without comparison. It's a kingdom that's better than the one you're in when you're always doing that. That's the first thing we sort of learn from the interaction with the The second thing we learn uh, is this real, really weird thing where uh, John asks Jesus a question. And Jesus, he walks up to him after hearing this conversation. He says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we try to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. And Jesus kind of responds to what, what's going on here? Why, why, did Jesus, why did John ask this question? It's sort of strange. Um, obviously, there's someone out there that's not one of the twelve that's casting out demons, and it's working. Okay, that's one thing. It's working. Obviously, he's, he's seeing it happen. And, um, you know, maybe he felt like the man was doing something wrong. We're not real sure. Uh, he might have been intimidated by the man because earlier... Um, in Luke, right before this, uh, Jesus sends out the disciples to go cast out cast out demons and heal folks, and they come back and some of them can't do it. And so maybe he's feeling inferior, you know, like I can't do this, so we shouldn't let you know we shouldn't let him do it. But I think the answer is fairly clear about why, if you look at what he says, he says, um, "Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us." In other words, um, he wasn't part of the group. You want part of the click, you know, part of that. He, he doesn't hang with us, and so we try to stop him from doing what we do. Um, and that's the second thing I want you to see in, in terms of greatness in the kingdom, is that in our little kingdoms, charity toward others is condemned. 
We don't want to be charitable toward other folks. Because when we do that, it ruins our kingdom. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about, I don't know how many of you have ever read his King's College lecture uh, from 1944 called The Inner Ring. It's a very interesting lecture that he writes. And he basically says that in every group, in every place, um, there are groups of people. And then inside the larger group, there's a smaller group that's sort of the in crowd, right? And then inside that smaller group, there's another smaller group called this kind of a more of an in crowd. And it keeps getting smaller and smaller. And, um, and everybody wants to move in. You know, everybody wants to be inside the next ring. We want to be in sort of the in group that everybody likes. And everybody's kind of, and, and um, these groups, while these groups can't be avoided, um, if we let new folks in to our inner rings, this is what happens. It threatens our power within the group because now we're letting other people in. And it makes us feel powerless. Um, it excites our insecurities about ourselves because new people are coming in that are not like us. Um, and it makes us feel like we're losing control in our group. And you may you may actually deal with this some in your RUF groups. You know, you you know, there's this temptation that like if we let new people in, then I'm just I'm not going to be as um, great as I was. Um, and uh, Lewis says this about these inner rings. I think this is fascinating. He says inner rings are unavoidable and an innocent feature of life, though certainly not a beautiful, because they show us our longing to enter into them. Our anguish when we're excluded from them, and the kind of pleasure we feel when we actually do. Very, very interesting. There's this sort of um, sinful desire in us to be on the end ground. And um, it begs this question. It, it begs the question of, are you charitable to people that are different, that are not in your group? Are you charitable to them? Or does your small kingdom thinking push them out? Or are you charitable to people who look differently than you? That are different ethnicities. Um, people who are, are not like you in that way. People who have less money than you. Or more money than you. People who aren't from where you're from. Uh, people who believe different things than you. When people come to your RUFs that, that, are, that are you know not religious or that are trying to figure this thing out, and they believe things that are crazy different from what you believe, are you charitable to them? Are you kind to them? you show them mercy um, in the way that you talk to them and that you love them? Is, is your argument of a place where people can feel like they can come in and they can sort of try on the gospel, and if they don't like it, they can take it off, and then they can try it on again, you know, without you judging them? You're giving them charity. You see, by... by Doing this by, by being charitable to people in your groups, you are showing the gospel. You are revealing mercy, kindness, and grace to them in the way that the king has It's really kind of a, a beautiful thing. Uh, what about other denominations or other religions? Are, are you charitable to these type of people uh, in your, the way that you deal with them? Uh, one of my favorite Christian writers is a guy named J.C. Ryle. He wrote this. I thought it was very good. He says... Uh, we forget that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly on all wisdom and that, that, that many people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful when sin is opposed, the gospel is preached, and the devil's kingdom is pulled down, though the work may not be done exactly in the way we like. We must try to believe that men may be true-hearted followers of Christ and yet for some reason may be kept back from seeing all things in religion like we do. 
Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified no matter who the preacher may be or what church they belong to. I mean, for reformed people, I mean, that's a nice fact. You know, we love to kind of be our people and, and believe our stuff and have our little holy huddles and, you know, help, you know what, whatever it may be. You know, we raise our banners high, but, but when we do that, we push people out. And we don't show them the gospel. Okay? Um, I think that's one of the most beautiful things about the Reformed faith is that if, if it's true, if you truly look at it and you look at God's sovereignty and, the, and Him as the King, and He is constantly showing you mercy in your life, He's constantly giving you what you don't deserve. He's constantly giving you grace. We have to do that to others. I mean, if you, if you know him at all as your king, you have to begin to be charitable to other people. That's how that, that's, a, that's an, a natural inclination of the Christian. Look at how Jesus responds to John. He says this. He says, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. You see, with Jesus as the king, Charity is not condemned, it's cherished. Um, we desire to let others in despite their messes because Jesus lets you in despite your mess. Jesus is the king that loves all kinds of people. All kinds. And the question is, does your, does your movement into his kingdom reflect that in what you do? Are you the kind of person that attracts all kinds of people? Not because you want to have your little holy huddle, white bread, whatever it is. But because you want people to see this king and how good he is and how wonderful his kingdom is. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this. There are two, I think, um, really great things about my experience in RUF. I was converted in RUF when I was a student at Mercer University a long time ago. And um, there's two things I've noticed sort of about RUF. One is is that um, it really does attract broken people with messy lives. And I think it's exactly what it's supposed to be. Because it does that because we have a king who loves people that are broken and have messy lives. Think about Jesus in his ministry. Who were the people that were attracted to him? Prostitutes, tax collectors, the fringe people in society. Who were those that were repelled by him? It was the people who were religious. And we have to ask ourselves, does, do our do our ministries, do our churches do the same? Are we worshiping that king? Is that the king that we are putting forth in people and holding up to people as good news? Um, and the second thing I've noticed about RUF is that people genuinely love you for no reason. You know, they do. I've noticed this in my church in Lawrenceville. I'm like, why are you people loving me? What, do you want something? You know, what are you trying to get from me? But it's a kingdom without comparison. It's a place where people love you because the king is loved them. And the question is, is that something that you want to be a part of? Um, once again, I want to come back to this question. I believe you ask it almost every time, and that's this. Why would we give up greatness for ourselves and our little kingdom in order to be um, in this other kingdom where we're not in the center? Why would, why would you not want to be the main character in your own story? Why would you want Jesus to be the main character? I think one thing that's helpful to think about is this. Is that though you're not the main character in this king's story, you are the love interest. Um, how many of you have seen the movie Titanic? Okay. 
I'm about to emasculate myself, and I'm fine with that. Um, every time I watch Titanic, there's a scene where I cry. Okay, I'm a movie crier, and I'm fine with that too. Um, and it's this particular scene that I love, okay, where Jack is, the boat's starting to sink. Well, actually, let me say this first. You may not know this. The guy who directed Titanic, James Cameron, people asked him, they said, um, how on earth are you going to make a movie that everyone knows the ending to? The boat is going to sink, and people are going to die. How are you going to make a movie like that that people will actually want to come and watch and will make money? And, um, and Cameron had this really great really great answer. He said, I'm not going to make a movie about the boat sink. I'm going to make a movie about love. And the reason he said that is because the story, the real story that keeps people watching Titanic, and by the way, it's the most watched movie in the history of the world. The reason people like Titanic is because of Jack and Rose. That's why they like Titanic. And there's this great scene that I cry at every time where, um, where the boat's starting to sink, and they're putting the women and the children on these boats. You know, they're lowering them down. And Jack runs Rose to the boat, and he puts her in the boat, and it begins to go down. And he's sort of looking over at her, and their eyes are locked, you know, and they love thing. It's going down. The boat's going down. And um, and all of a sudden, Rose is looking up at him, and there's just something clicks in her. And she just begins to frantically climb up the chains to get back to him. And um, it's this poignant moment in the movie where you, you realize that she would rather die with him than to live without him. Really beautiful. And your king is the same way. He's a king who would rather die for you than to live without you. And that's good news. That's a king worth living for. That's a king worth dying for. And that's a kingdom that is truly great. Just pray. Father, would you help us um, to find um, what true greatness is? Not by looking in our little kingdoms where we compare ourselves with other people, but by looking to yours. For there is, is a kingdom without comparison. A kingdom where um, you're fixing us and the world, and a, and a kingdom where the king is willing to lay down his life for us. Would you help us to begin to open our eyes to that and to want to be a part of that? And we thank you that as we look deeply into it, it is so great. We pray this in the name of the King. Amen.